Well, as you know, we started a series last week. Sure, this is on. Kind of a detour uh, last week of a look at what is a biblical covenant. And uh, as we begin today, I want you to do me a favor. If you have your Bible or you have a journal with you, uh, this, this illustration will only work if you have a physical copy, not a digital copy. But if you have a book in your possession today, Typically, you are looking at the Bible in this, in this fashion, right? You're looking at the words, you're looking at the pages. What you rarely look at, unless there's a problem with the Bible that you have, is the binding. As you know, the, the adhesive that is placed in this book is what holds every page together. It's the structure of the books that are on your shelf and potentially in your hand this morning. You don't think a lot about it until that binding breaks and all the pages start to fall out. But it's a very necessary component and foundation uh, to keeping this book together. I want you to think about that structure and that formation when you think about biblical covenants. Because as you look through the Bible, what you're going to see and understand is that the covenants are like a framework to the story of God. And as I said last week, we don't understand these covenants. One, because we, are, we don't consider ourselves as Jewish people. We're Gentiles. And so oftentimes we get to those covenants and we think, oh, well, that's a great historical marker for the history of God's people. But what does that really have to do with me? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, you are under the new covenant. And so for you to understand the new covenant, you need to understand the covenants of the Old Testament as well. Last week, we looked at two of them. We looked at the creation covenant that God made not only with Adam, but he made with Noah. And the promises that God made to to be a blessing to all of his creation, and the representation of that creation being in Adam as the representative uh, and covenant keeper, and, um, and then, of course, Noah later on. And... As we study the Word of God at Redemption, we want to understand the Bible as a whole. We want to understand the unity of the Bible. We want to understand the way in which the flow of Scripture makes one unit so that these covenants and these chapters and these books are telling one story, not separate stories. We also want to focus on the unity of God's Word because all of God's Word is important. We don't want to just say that the New Testament is important. We, we believe that the Old Testament is important as well. And for us to completely understand or, or fully understand God as he has revealed himself, we need to see that in Genesis through Revelation. So we've done that as we've studied through the book of Nehemiah, focusing on the character of God, most particularly his faithfulness to his people. And we got to chapter 10, and we're kind of putting a, I'm putting the brakes on Because we're getting to chapter 10 of Nehemiah, which we're not going to be in today, so there's no reason to turn turn to your Bibles there. We get to chapter 10 of Nehemiah, and we see the people of God renewing the covenant with God. They're renewing the covenant. They make these vows, and they make these oaths. And so I'm putting the brakes on there and saying, we we need to stop and take a step back and say, we need to understand the covenants as a whole, so we understand what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 10. And so I hope that it will be a blessing to you. Now, my view of the covenants, as I've said, is that they all are a a structure and framework uh, leading us from Genesis to Revelation. And they are all leading and pointing to the grace of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. My view, and there's been different views and interpretations of the covenants, my view is what's considered, and it's not my view, but it's the one I hold to, is called progressive covenantalism. Meaning that there's a progression through the Bible, through the covenants, fulfilled in Jesus. So it's a Christ-centered, not divided, but unified look at what the covenants mean and how they relate to us. 
And the reason why that's important is because not only do I teach progressive covenantalism, but I teach progressive revelation. What is progressive revelation? Well, it's simply this, is that God has used all of the scriptures to explain himself to us as human beings. In other words, that when you start in Genesis, you have to continue through Genesis to Revelation to get a full grasp of who God is. You can't leave out the Old Testament. You can't leave out the New. God progressively has revealed himself more and more throughout history and throughout time at the conclusion of Revelation so that we can know him more fully. R.C. Sproul has a great explanation. He says, All that has been revealed of God in the totality of Scripture is not found, for example, in just the book of Genesis. Much of that content of God's redemptive activity in Christ is hinted at in parts and addressed in shadowy ways in the earlier portions of the Old Testament. But throughout sacred Scripture, the content of divine revelation is expanded ultimately to the fullness reached in the New Testament. That's what it's meant by progressive revelation in this context. That the revelation within Scripture unfolds in an ever-deepening and broadening way. That the Bible is to be regarded as holistic, or a, a holistic book in which the Old Testament helps us understand the New, and the New Testament sheds significant light on the Old. So I hope that you will look at Scripture that way, And see this progressive revealing of Scripture. And in that revealing of Scripture, see the covenants are necessary to you understanding the Bible. That's why we're going to spend some time on it. And I hope that you'll learn and be challenged in these ways. So as a recap, last week we we looked at, really just from the beginning. And we looked at this covenant with creation. Where God instills a, a, a promise and, and, and a, uh, a blessing for creation. And he, and, he, and he names Adam and Eve. By creating them in the image of God, he names them as his representative, his head. As a means in which he will enter into the covenant. And the reason, or the way in which we kind of opened that up, and I'm not going to re-preach my sermon last week. You'll have to go back and listen if you missed. But the way in which we see this covenant... Um, displayed in, in Genesis 1 through 4 is really seeing the similarities between that and what God did in the covenant with Noah. You have to really take the two and compare them and see the, the covenant that God made with Noah, he also made in a similar way with Adam. Adam was the representative with Eve as mankind, made in God's image, separate from creation, made in the, 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 the best of God's creation, His image, all the creatures, all the trees, all the landscape, not made in the image of God. Mankind was, therefore being the representative of God. And what did He tell them? Be fruitful and multiply, rule over the earth. Those are words, those are covenantal words, those are covenantal language, making them His representatives. And in that covenant, they would have fellowship with one another. And and so you would see in display, and we see this in Genesis, this relationship. We talked about last week that covenants are not about agreements or contracts. They're about relationships between two parties. And so this relationship between Adam and Eve and God and creation, we see as, as they fellowshiped with each other before the fall. But Adam was a covenant breaker. And because he was a covenant breaker, God brought about the, the, uh, the consequences of breaking the covenant with him. Sin entered into the world. Curses came down upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. And there began to be the effects of sin and rebellion in the world. You can see how that breaks down. And those are all very familiar chapters to us, right? Well, we continue to see the effects of sin in the world. So much so that when you get to Genesis chapter 6, the effects are so great that God uses this language that he is disappointed in the way in which mankind has responded to him. That literally he is disappointed in, in, the, in, in the creation and the way in which they have rebelled against him. 
And he decides to bring about great judgment. And in that great judgment, he floods the earth. And he chooses by his grace a man and his family to be rescued and to be saved. And once again, we see this creation reboot, as we might say. As Adam and Eve step out of the ark, the world has been, in, in a sense, recreated by disaster, by chaos. With all order and, and, and creativity in God, he, he, He's remaking once again with Noah and his family. And we see, again, a covenant with Noah. Noah builds an altar. He worships God there. He establishes the covenant with Noah. And remember that we said last week that the language that's being used in Scripture, and we'll really dive into this today in, in, in the story of Abraham, is that in the story with Noah, God never cuts or makes a covenant with Noah. He is only affirming a covenant that already existed. And that's important language that we saw last week in the Hebrew language that is very important for us as we move forward. So what happens with Noah? Well, we see the same situation happen. Sin continues to have its effect. Noah continues to break his covenant as Adam broke his covenant. In other words, just like Adam, Noah is a faulty representative of the glory of God and the relationship that man has with God and creation. And we begin to see this theme. And I pointed out to you last week that 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 theme is seen very clearly in the nakedness and shame of Adam and the nakedness and shame of Noah. Immediately in the life of Noah, we see that connection there. As Noah lays exposed in his tent, drunk and his, and his sons do vile things. Nakedness and shame reflected upon the breaking of the covenant and the sin that exists in mankind. And so what it leads us to is then a hope for something new. Something better. And that's how the story is progressing. That there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more. Which leads us to Genesis chapter 12. And so as you turn in your Bibles... We're going to be in the book of Genesis this week, or this, this afternoon. <laughs> Hopefully we won't be here all week. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 22. If you're taking notes, those four chapters, 12, 15, 17, and 22, are the pivotal chapters in a relationship with Abraham and God, where the, 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 uh, the covenant is established. And what we see in Genesis chapter 12 is once again God creating a new creation. No longer on a global scale, but remember my diagram from last week. What was, what was happening on a global scale with Adam and Eve and then with Noah and the flood is now being, it's being narrowed down to one people, one nation. And yet God is still doing the same things that we will see as he did with Adam and, and Eve and with Noah and his family, he is bringing about new creation. So instead of the earth being this place where God would bless his people, now we see God promising the land of Canaan as a place that we would call a new Eden. So there was Eden, and there was Eden in a sense again after Noah, and now with Abraham there's a promise of another Eden just a smaller Eden, the land of Canaan. And so today we're going to dive into the covenant with Abraham. And as I said, these four chapters, chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22, we see a general promise of the covenant in chapter 12. In chapter 15, the cutting or the making of the covenant. In chapter 17, the affirming of the covenant with a sign. And finally, chapter 22, a reflection of the covenant relationship. The famous story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And he takes him up on the mountain and he is willing to sacrifice his only son, the son of the covenant, the son of the promise, showing us a faithfulness to the covenant relationship with God. Now, there's a lot to get here in these chapters. So I'm going to be traveling in light speed, and I hope that you can 
see some clarity in what we're going to say, but by no means will I be breaking down all of these passages in a typical way that I normally do in an expositional sermon. But I want to bring out some points so that you can understand why this covenant with Abraham is so important to us as the church today. Look at Genesis chapter 12 with me. We'll start there. Verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram was Abraham's name before God changed it, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are six promises there. Six promises, three made to Abraham and three made to the people of the earth in response to Abraham. Notice with me this relationship that, that, that is started with the Lord Yahweh and what he promises to Abraham. Notice he says, I will show you the land to go. I will make you, I will bless you, I will make your name great, I will bless those, I will curse those. The Lord is showing His almighty power in initiating the relationship with Abram. Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, he was a pagan. There was absolutely nothing about Abraham that conditioned him to be chosen by God. God chose him unconditionally by His sovereign grace and love. I like to think in my mind's eye, what would it be like for God to have chosen someone else? Steve from Minneapolis. Why not? We, we know of Abraham as this really important figure in, in the, the history of the Bible, but, but there clearly could have been another person that God chose. Because there was nothing special with Abraham. It was by God's grace that he called him out of the nations. These pagan nations. To show us his sovereign grace and love. That the promise was to this man and to initiate a relationship with him. Because this is what God does. God initiates relationship with us. We don't initiate relationship with him. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is a well-known verse. He tells Moses tells the people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God chose Israel. God made that nation spring up out of an old man and an old woman to show us how immeasurably immense and incalculable His love is. His grace is. Of all the people in the world, why did God choose to save you? Why did God choose to bless you? Why did God choose to cast His love upon you? You surely can't look in the mirror and, 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 and look at your life and think, man, I really deserve this, God. I've done a lot of great things for you. Because church, when we fall into self, such, such self-righteousness in those moments, we are failing to truly grasp the depth of our own depravity and sin. We have been continually evil, just like the people that God cast into the mountains when He flooded the earth. You know, if you go to the, uh, the, the Ark or the Creation Museum up in Louisville, there's these little miniature um, displays of, of the flood. And a lot of the things that you don't hear in your Bible stories in, in Sunday school or in Disciple Me you see displayed in these little images of, of the floodwaters and, and there's, a, there's a, the ark floating on top of the waters and all you see along with floating trees is the, the peaks of the mountains. And on top of the peaks of the mountains are people clamoring to the highest points running from the wrath of God. And it's a powerful little display because you don't think about that. Of all the people that laughed and scoffed at the warnings of Noah, were now running for their lives from the wrath of God. This is the world that we live in. That all of us were running from the wrath of God, living as we wanted to live, scoffing at His word and His warnings. And yet God rescues us. 
He snatches us out and he says, I'm going to put you on a boat and I'm going to save you, not because of anything good in you, but because of my great love and my great glory. Charles Wesley writes one of my famous hymns, one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be? And in verse 4 of that hymn, he, he writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When we think about the way in which God responds or, or initiates a, a, a covenant relationship, He does so freely by His grace. That we are the ones in the dungeon. In a dark and gloomy place of sin, shackled and in bondage to the weight of our own sin debt, and we are loving it. We are content and satisfied to be there. And God comes with His light to expose our chains and expose the depravity and He changes us. This is the relationship that we see. His electing and gracious love of God as He calls Abraham to follow Him and He calls us as well. And as we see this relationship begin, we see that not only with the Lord initiating, but Abraham as a recipient of this covenant, as a partner in this covenant. That He tells Abraham that He is going to bless him. He gives him the land that He's going to show him. And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great that you will be a blessing. Three promises to Abraham and his family. Now we know that that promise comes from childbirth. That, that, that the offspring of Ab- Abraham would make his name great. Because in that uh, culture, children were a blessing. Children are not a blessing anymore to so many people in our world. But for him to to have a great name was to have sons to carry on that name. But he would not have just a name. He would have the name that God gave him. A name that reflect the glory of God and the majesty of God. And the covenant that God had established with him. And so his name was important and his name would be great because God would give him this name. And he would expand that name by the, the gift of God. And so the promise of offspring for Abraham is a way in which we see God create again. God takes the deadness of nothing and creates with Adam the landscape and the beauty that surrounds us. God destroys the earth with a flood and once again, in a recreating sort of way, begins to rebuild the earth again with beauty and majesty with sustenance in a way in which Noah and his family can live and be fruitful and multiply. Listen, church, let's not forget that a, a, an earth that is laid waste by floods and water cannot be prosperous unless God recreates again. How would, I, 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 how would have Noah and his family ever lived? How would they have survived if God did not provide a landscape for them that was livable? And so once again, he provides. And now with Abraham... He promises him a great name through the offspring of his, of his family. But he has to create another miracle. He has to make a creation act. And he does so in the womb of Sarah. In the deadness of her womb. In the lack of function of her reproductive organs. She, he once again creates new life. Not only giving new life with a son, but creating a a, a body in a way in which Sarah can have children. Showing us that once again, new creation is happening. And this name would be blessed, the the, the name of, of Abraham would be a blessing to him because children would be born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. 
And so the promise of offspring was a sign of God's creation. This creative act in Sarah to show God's power and glory. So much so that Sarah and Abraham could not, they continually disbelieved. All through Genesis chapter 15, uh, 12 and 15 and 17, you see this, this, this doubt in their minds that continually rise up. Even though God has promised them and, and shown them His power and His might, they doubt, they lack faith. And yet God still establishes a covenant with them. And God continues that covenant. He establishes it with Abraham He continues it with Abraham's son in Genesis chapter 26 and then continues it on with his grandson, Jacob, in chapter 28. It's an everlasting covenant, as Psalm 105 tells us. But not only is the promise for Abraham and his family to be a great nation, which we know that nation to be Israel, but the promise is also for the land of Canaan. This is the land that God took Abraham to God shows us that the land of Canaan was the place in which God would, would, they would experience blessing under the care and protection and provision of God. It would be their Eden. He would make His presence known. He would be worshipped there by the people just as Noah worshipped the Lord after coming off the ark. Therefore, the name and the children and the land are all the blessings of God for Abraham solely by an act of His love. But there's one more thing that's important about this covenant. Is that God says, not only will I bless you, but I will bless those who bless you. So in other words, Abraham, and and we have this famous uh, understanding of of this covenant with him, is that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those that bless you, Abraham, will receive the blessing of God. Those who rebel and curse you, Abraham, will face the judgment and the wrath of God. But the point is, is just like Adam and just like Noah, God will bless the earth by those he has placed and entered into covenant with. Now Abraham will be the one whom whom will represent God upon the earth, who will be his son, his obedient son. Representing the glory of God to the nations. So this is how it all connects back now to to Nehemiah. The prophet Ezekiel tells us of these promises. Look at what he says in Ezekiel chapter 36. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I cause the cities of, to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. What's Ezekiel talking about? He's talking about when Assyria and Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the city of Canaan. And they took it over and they destroyed the temple and they destroyed all the holy places where God was worshipped. Ezekiel calls this a desolate place, like like a desert. Look at what he says. And they will say, this land was desolate, but has now become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolation and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Church, this is what we've been learning about. God making His name great by sending the people back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple so that the worship of of Yahweh would once again commence so that His name would be made great among the nations. And this is what God was doing with Abraham as He initially brought him to Canaan. Jerusalem is smack dab in the middle of the area that we know as Canaan. An area so strategic that as God placed him there, he placed him in a fruitful land. If you look at a a world map and you understand where Jerusalem is and where Canaan is, the Middle East as we call it, 
Back in Abraham's day, you would know that Egypt was on one side and, 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 and Mesopotamia was on the other and that, that the, literally the, it was a trade route smack dab in the middle of Canaan. Matter of fact, Stephen Wellham calls it, it was literally the central spine of the internet in the ancient world. All of the communication, commerce, and trade back and forth went between Egypt and Mesopotamia passing through Canaan. And when it does, what are they supposed to see? They're supposed to see a witness of a group of people who demonstrate a right relationship with the one and true God. A truly human way of treating each other and a proper stewardship of the earth's resources. God did all this. So that Eden would be a place where God's glory would be manifested to the people. And so this relationship with Adam is an opportunity Excuse me, a relationship with Abraham is an opportunity for, for Abraham to show his love and worship of Yahweh and point other people to Yahweh as well. Now, does this sound familiar? Well, because ultimately we see the, the, the failure of Abraham and the failure of Isaac and the failure of Jacob and, and we, we pass down through history and we continue to see these covenants being broken and broken and broken and, and that's why it all comes to culmination and, and finality in Jesus because in Jesus, he is the obedient son that none of these other men could be. The Bible calls him the true Israel. He's the better Abraham and the better Moses. As we read earlier in our gospel renewal, he fulfills the law at every point. Because we can't. And so he is the obedient son for us. He is the covenant keeper in the way in which all of Israel is the covenant breakers. And this connection with Christ as the perfect way in which the nations can see the Lord. The Lord Jesus steps out of heaven and he comes down to man. And he's not just the obedient son, he's God in the flesh. The Bible tells us he's the image of the invisible God. He actually radiates the glory of God there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He displays it in his words, in his power. He would heal in ways that only the Lord heals. He would forgive in ways that only the Lord can forgive. And so the nations would see the glory of God as they look to Jesus. And now, as the church, we are the body of Christ. We are brought together because we follow Jesus and we are in a relationship with Him. And therefore, we live out our lives as the church, as representatives, so that the nations would see Jesus in us. We don't just take the, the gospel and the, and the love of Jesus to the nations, but the nations see it in us now, here, today, as the church operates throughout the world. Connor mentioned this earlier. The Ukrainian brothers and sisters all over the world in a war-torn city, in a war-torn torn country, giving aid and sharing the gospel and worshiping in their tiny homes in the midst of bombs going off all around them. Showing the glory and the majesty of God. The comfort that He provides. The love that they have for Him. So a covenant relationship between Abraham and and God sheds light onto the truth of God's grace and love. That He calls people out of darkness into His marvelous light. And He promises blessing. A future our land of Canaan is, is not a physical land. Our, our land is, is uh, I mean, excuse me, our promise of Canaan is an eternal rest. An eternal rest with God in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now we could debate back and forth that there will be a, a physical land. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a rebuilt creation once again. But the purpose and the point is not that one day God will make perfect trees again. Or that He'll make beautiful cities that we'll live in. 
Or that even our families might be there because they follow Jesus. The point is, is that we will be with Jesus. That's the point. That the covenant is about a relationship. Not an agreement. Not a you give me this and I'll do that. But you love me because I shouldn't have been loved. And therefore I will trust you and have faith in you. And so that's the relationships that we see with Abraham. This call upon Abraham's life. And in Genesis chapter 15, we begin to kind of see the, the expansion of this in what I call the cutting of the covenant. The making of the covenant. Remember we said last week that, that when you see covenants in the Bible, whether it's between man and God or man and man... There is oftentimes a cutting of the covenant where it is made and then there is an establishing or an affirming of the covenant as a reminder. Okay? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, you actually see this in the Hebrew language and displayed for us in a very physical, metaphorical way. Genesis chapter 15, look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord. Who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how how am I to know that, that, that I shall possess it? And he says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these things, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now we see in, this, in, in, in these verses here that God is cutting the covenant. He, is, he has promised the covenant in chapter 12 and in chapter 15 He is literally making the covenant. I'm going to make the covenant with you, He tells Abraham. And He literally displays it in this beautiful picture for us of covenant making whereby this, these animals are severed in half and there's blood, just imagine with your mind's eye, there's, there's blood everywhere. You, you cut a cow in half, you get a lot of blood. Okay? That shouldn't be hard. Not just a cow, but also a goat and a ram. He didn't cut the birds in half, but they were tiny. And he separate them. And the, and the parties would walk between the halves to demonstrate, to demonstrate or display that if I, if I break this covenant, then may this judgment that happened to these animals happen upon me. But here's the beauty of this passage. In the covenant making of God with Abraham, God and His presence is the only thing that walks through the pieces of meat. Abraham never walks through God represents Himself and His glory as a smoking pot, as a torch, a flaming torch, and He literally passes through by Himself, showing us the faithfulness of God as a covenant keeper and the faithlessness of man because of sin. Church, we can't miss this. God is revealing to Himself in a glorious way, that He is always and will always be a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He's not absolving man from obedience to the covenant, but He's declaring that He will always be faithful even when we are not. So verse 17, is, or verse 18, excuse me, of chapter 15 is the summary. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river, the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephaim. And this is where we stop and marvel at God's glory demonstrated in His faithfulness, never abandoning us. Always being faithful, walking alongside us as we follow Him, caring for us and providing for us. And you've got to see in this covenant cutting the picture of Jesus. That the same Lord Jesus, 
He steps out of heaven. And in representation of the new covenant. Offers himself as a sacrifice. And not only is he the Lamb of God that is slain to take away the sins of the world, but he offers himself walking through, being faithful to make the covenant with us, and being the sole one to do the work that's necessary. Walking through the sacrifice, blood uh, sprayed everywhere, being willing to give his own life so that the debt can be established or can be removed and forgiven. So once again, the Lord Jesus is pictured in the sacrifice that's made with him keeping the covenant and being faithful to the end for all eternity. This is why we trust in him. This is why we look to Christ. So in chapter 17 we have the or chapter 15 we have the cutting of the covenant. Chapter 12 was the promise. Chapter 15 is the cutting, the establishing of the covenant with Abraham and his people. Chapter 17 is an affirming of the covenant. Again, using that same Hebrew words. He's reminding Abraham in chapter 17, I am establishing this covenant that was already made between me and you and your offspring throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And he tells Abraham his responsibilities. We see this more clearly in Genesis 17, that there is a responsibility to the covenant. That while the covenants are established in grace, there is a responsibility in the tension that still exists, whereby we are called to obey. We are called to be the obedient son. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, this is chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and, my, and, and may multiply you greatly. Now, as soon as you, you balk at that phrase there, make my covenant between me and you, that's not cutting the covenant. It's a totally different Hebrew word. He has already established this covenant. He is reaffirming this covenant. But look at what he says. He commands Abram, walk before me and be blameless. This is the responsibility of of the covenant keeper. God is doing his part to establish and, 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 and fulfill the covenant. But we are still called to be obedient sons. And we see this displayed in these passages in great and sorrowful ways. Abraham's life from Genesis 12 through 22 for 40 plus years is a roller coaster of obedience and faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You can see Abraham as a liar to the nations as he goes out with his wife to Egypt and lies continuously to kings about his wife being his sister, to him being faithful enough in chapter 22 to sacrifice his own son, knowing, as Hebrew tells us, that God could raise his son up from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but that sure reflects heavily upon my life. God, I want to be so faithful. I want to be so obedient. I want to be the obedient son that you want me to be. I want to keep my covenant. And then 10 seconds later, I fail. Miserably. Disobediently. Sinfully. Constantly reminding myself that I can't measure up to the perfection that God has established, which is again why we need Jesus as the obedient son. As the one who walks before God blameless because he is God. Obeying the law in every respect. Which is why we must trust in Him and believe in Him. Paul tells us about this struggle with sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have 
the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what, keep, is what I keep on doing. And so the covenants teach us God's faithfulness. And because of sin, our unfaithfulness, and yet our responsibility to strive for obedience, to strive for holiness. We see disobedience in Abraham's life, and yet we see faithfulness. God calls us to fight the flesh and fight the struggle with sin, to continue to strive for holiness. Why? Not because we're trying to earn some favor with God, but because we love our relationship with Him. Chapter 17 also gives us a sign of the covenant. Just as it gave Noah the sign of the rainbow in the sky or the bow in the sky as a sign of peace, circumcision acts as an odd practice in our understanding of it. But when you dive deeply into the history of circumcision, you understand that there's a beauty there that once again God is communicating to Abraham and his people. Historically, circumcision was already practiced in other nations, most particularly the Egyptians. In the, in the, the nation of Egypt, circumcision was only reserved for priests. They were the holy men. They were set apart from all the other people. And the kings were called king priests, the pharaohs, and they too would be circumcised. And this was a setting apart. A sense of holiness, so much so that the pharaohs would call themselves the sons of God. When God establishes circumcision with Abraham, He doesn't say, well, Abraham, you're the leader of Israel. You're the father of, many, of this great nation, so we're going to circumcise you. And all the other leaders, we're going to circumcise them. No, God says every male will be circumcised. Because you're not a nation of great people. You're not a, a, a nation of a, of a good majority. You're a, a holy nation. So that the, the lineage would continue. So that every child, uh, a, 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 a boy born on the eighth day would be circumcised. Why? So that, the, that as they grew, they would continue to uh, multiply and fill the earth and, and be representatives of people who lived holy and blameless in the world. And as parents, you have to think circumcision was an act of faith. Having a child circumcised was putting faith in the Lord to protect that child. In the same way that, that you operate in such a way to, to trust God that if you raise a knife to your only born son, somehow by God's grace, he's going to allow the promise of God as he promised Abraham to continue a lineage even if his own only child was slain. Abraham operated by faith. So don't get caught up in the, the scientific nature of circumcision. Circumcision was an act of faith for a holy people, you circumcised out of faith. And because of that faith, you were obedient. So I would say it this way. Faith or trust in the Lord leads to obedience, but it, it precipitates or it originates in a faith and a trust in God. Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 4. Mr. Fred read some of this earlier to us. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, he wants the Jewish people, particularly in Rome, to understand that their relationship with God was not based upon their obedience, it was based upon their faith. So if they were just obeying the law, but they didn't have faith in God to fulfill His promises, then their faith was void. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is in the adherence of the law, or those who obey it, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, 
Not only to the adherents or the, those who obey the law, but also those who, who, uh, the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in, in whom we've believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So what's your responsibility in the covenant? What's my responsibility in the covenant? It's faith. We're to be called out of darkness into marvelous light, trusting in the true obedient son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we live by faith and not by sight. We, 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 we love God and, and we worship Him and we obey because of our faith. That's our responsibility. We believe and trust God's faithful promises, His faithful character. Knowing that by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, so that no one would boast. So therefore, the covenants show us our relationship to God and man. And the foundation of that relationship is grace. That our response to the covenant, our responsibility to the covenant is a faith and a trust in God to accomplish all that's necessary. To walk through the severed animals for us so that we might experience a relationship with Him. And that we would live holy lives worshiping Him and honoring Him as Abraham did, as Noah did. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Because He's called us to be His sons and daughters. He's called us to love Him even when we were unlovable. So that He may make His glory known to the nations through us, His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these Old Testament pictures of what you have accomplished in Jesus. God, as we try to put these patches together to make this tapestry, God, that you have done, Lord, we should be in awe and are in awe of all you have accomplished. The full scope of your word that brings us to the feet of your Son is, is astonishing to us. And it should lead us to worship. That your grace is immeasurable. That you have sought to have a relationship with these in this room that have completely and totally undeserved any of your love and yet you have set your love upon them. As we sang earlier, Father, we can know by relationship with Jesus that we are your treasured possession. Heirs to the inheritance that's set before us. And that should astonish us, God. That you would love us. So all we can do is say thank you. Be in awe of your greatness. And your love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.